you this morning, you should be able to find a chairback Bible nearby or in front of you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 925. Our ongoing series through Acts today comes to the first 34 verses of chapter 16. Uh, But to get us going, I'm going to read just through verse 15 with the conversion of, of Lydia. So let me begin by reading that passage, and then I'll pray for our study, and we'll continue on together. So listen now as God does speak to you through His perfect Word. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, a son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. And we remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Lord, we do thank you that you are merciful and gracious to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, and that you have spoken your words of life to us through him. And so we pray that you would speak now to us, for your servants are listening. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I recently was at a wedding, and as the rehearsal was going on, I got to know quite a bit of the people that were involved in that wedding party, meeting them for the first time, and it was one of those things that stick out to you for a variety of different reasons, not least of which is a number of the people in the wedding party. You know, they recounted to me these wonderful stories of how God had brought them to a faith in Jesus Christ, and it's quite true that Christians love to hear stories of God's saving power in the life of, of sinners. Sometimes we love to hear it so much that even an account of such a saving power can turn into to an international bestseller. 
Now, that happened in the middle of the 1700s. Some of you know that in the areas of New England, a revival of sorts broke out that we now call the Great Awakening. And it was a particular and powerful display of God's power that caused no small amount of commotion in the colonies at the time. For example, you can take the city of Northampton. It was in April of 1734 that a young boy, probably 14 or so years old, uh, well, he died suddenly and tragically. And at his funeral later that week, the pastor of the church there in town, a man named Jonathan Edwards, he preached a sermon from Psalm chapter 90. Teach us to number our days. And it was a sermon that had uh, a particular effect on the young people of the city as eternal realities pressed in upon their conscience in an unusually powerful way. And uh, soon enough, 12 months later, Northampton was famous throughout the colonies because this awakening, this revival, these stories of salvation were rumbling throughout the areas. They had even reached the ears of the most influential pastor at the time, probably in Boston, a man named Benjamin Coleman. So he wrote to Edwards saying, I've been hearing all these rumors, I've been hearing all these rumblings about revival in Northampton, and would you please report back to me what truly has happened there? Because so often you hear these stories of salvation and perhaps they're not nearly as certain and assured as you originally thought. And as months passed by, eventually Edwards gave the report that Coleman had requested. In his own Edwardsian way, he scribbled onto eight pages front and back in the tiniest handwriting uh, an account of the conversion of countless souls in Northampton and its vicinity. Uh, When that reached Coleman's hands, he was so taken by the story that eventually it was published into a hundred-page bestseller on both sides of the Atlantic in the English-speaking world. And it's famously known as a title from Edwards' catalog as a surprising work of God. But it was originally titled, A Narrative of the Conversion of Souls, Surprising Conversion of Souls in Northampton and its vicinity. And I tell you that because we come to our book of Acts once again, a book that we have said you could title it as the continuing acts of Jesus Christ by his spirit through his apostles. And as we're going to see in our chapter today, you could also subtitle it a narrative of the surprising sovereign work of God and the countless conversion of souls. Now, conversion's a word, students, that uh, used to belong to a common Christian way of speaking. I'm not so sure that it's one that we use too terribly often in our day, and there's numerous reasons, I think, why that might be the case. I mean, even just a, a few months ago, I was having lunch with a brother from another church in the area. It was the first time we had met, and as I greeted him across the table, I said something to the effect of, hey, hey, brother, tell me how you were converted and He looked at me uh, rather quizzically for a a few seconds and noticeably etched across his face was confusion because he's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Converted from what or converted to what? And eventually he figured it out. How did you come to faith in, in Jesus Christ? And what we want to see today in Acts chapter 16 is that conversion is an essential part of the church's experience. It's a vital and necessary part of the church's experience, and Christians of old and churches of old have always held this to be true. Uh, You can think about a word of encouragement even from the Prince of Preachers, John Owen, who said, ministers are seldomly blessed with success unless they are continually aiming at the conversion of souls. 
And even in a lecture that he titled on conversion of our aim, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said the great object of glorifying God is to be mainly achieved in the winning of souls. Ambassadors of peace should not cease to weep bitterly until sinners weep over their sins. And so what you're going to see along the way in our text today is this theme of conversion. And I want you to see it in a few different movements. We'll see, first of all, God sins. That's the first 10 verses. And then secondly, we're going to see that God saves, that he, he sends his missionaries for the work of conversion, and that God saves people by converting their hearts to Jesus Christ. And kids, you're going to want to notice, particularly in that second section of God saves, that God saves all different kinds of people. And he takes that same gospel and uses it to save all different kinds of people in different kinds of ways. And so it's a a text I trust that will encourage many of us because you might be in the room today and you were converted many years ago, perhaps even decades ago. And you might need a text like this to restore to you the joy of your salvation. Uh, Others of you might need to take something of the courage and boldness that belong to Paul and and Silas and Timothy and in your own life and what it means to be zealous and earnest with the gospel as you share it with others. And no doubt there surely is someone, if not some people, in the room today that need to ask the question that the jailer asked, uh, what must I do to be saved? That's the greatest question, isn't it, that any person could ever ask. What must I do to be saved? And a few narrative texts in Scripture paint that answer so brilliantly and simply as Acts 16. So we see, first of all, verse 1 through 10, God sins. Look again at verse 1. Paul comes to Derbe and Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy. We're told he was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. By implication, an unbeliever, you'll see in verse 2 as it continues, that Timothy was well known to the believers in the area of Lystra and Iconium. And what you need to know from where we left off last week in chapter 15 is that chapter ended with the separation of that first missionary team that went on Paul's first missionary journey, which was Paul and Barnabas. They had some sort of disagreement and dispute over this man named John Mark and his utility in the ongoing ministry of the gospel. And, and Paul and Barnabas split. And so as Paul begins his second missionary journey, we see that the Lord is now forming the second missionary team. We know that Paul is with Silas. And here in Lystra, he, he's now grabbing a man that would become, for, for Paul, a prototype in what faithfulness in gospel ministry looks like. If you are aspiring to be a faithful pastor or a leader in the church, Paul actually tells you in his letters that the person you want to look to, of course, in Paul, you look to him in his own imitation, but even further, you look to Timothy. Because he says, I have no one like Timothy who's genuinely concerned for the welfare of God's people and his humility and his ministry. But kids, you might remember what happened just perhaps a few months before when Paul was last at Lystra. If you flip back to a few chapters, what you would see is that Paul, when he went to Lystra for the first time, he preached the gospel powerfully, so powerfully that the people couldn't stand hearing it anymore, that they decided, they whipped up the crowd into a frenzy, and that they stoned Paul. They left him only a few breaths from death. And here he is, Paul once again going back into the lion's den 
to grab someone for his missionary team. You see even in verse 5 to encourage the church there once again. And this place that could have been haunted by memories of persecution, of suffering and affliction. Now, and that was a place that the Lord in his kindness is a place of finding his protege, his deputy in the apostolic ministry. And I hope many of you understand how the Lord loves to do things just like that. He'll, he'll take perhaps even a person, a situation, uh, an event in your life that in its first experience with them or with that, it was full of hardship. It was full of immense suffering. But in time, the Lord's kindness and goodness in his providence, it turns it over for you to see that he's doing something immeasurably more wonderful than ever you could possibly imagine. So that person or perhaps even that event now is a place of sweetness instead of bitterness. But you see what Paul requires of Timothy, perhaps even surprisingly in verse 3. He, he wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because the Jews who were in those places, that being Lystra and Iconium, they knew that Timothy's father was a Greek. Now, the bulk of chapter 15 that we looked at last week was all about this Jerusalem council. This first great gathering of church leaders and apostolic ministers. And you remember the principal question they're dealing with there in Jerusalem was, do Gentiles have to be circumcised in order to be saved? Really, do they have to become Jews in order to be Christians? It was an understanding of the gospel that it was faith in Jesus Christ plus something in order to belong. And uh, they rightly declared that, no, it's just faith in Jesus Christ. Circumcision counts for nothing anymore, as Paul goes on in great detail to write to the church at Galatia. But why then is Paul requiring Timothy to be circumcised? Even, you'll notice in verse 4, they're soon going to pass around this declaration from the Jerusalem council that says circumcision isn't required. Well, why is Timothy now being circumcised? Well, it's probably because, in part, Paul knows now's a good time to circumcise Timothy because it's been clearly declared that circumcision isn't any saving value whatsoever. It's not necessary in order for someone to participate and belong to God's family of grace. But if you know Paul's letters well, he actually tells us the answer for why. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, what does he write to the church at Corinth? But I become all things to all people in order that I might win some. He continues, to the Jews, I become a Jew in order that I might what? Win Jews. It's precisely because he knows this is perhaps going to give an audience and a platform to reach the Jews. He doesn't have to do it, but he does it because he thinks it's going to open a door for the gospel ministry. And I wonder if any of you have recently had to take on something or put off something. And you weren't even required to do either, but you thought it was wise. You thought it was even best to be able to, to reach someone with the gospel that's found in, in Jesus Christ. So you see, they make their way through these areas, delivering in verse 4 and following uh, the declaration and decision of the Jerusalem council. And look at verse 6. They begin to experience frustration in the Spirit. Uh, they're prepared for the ministry, and now notice the direction for their ministry. Uh, they were forbidden, look at the end of verse 6, by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. These are men that God has commissioned to speak the word. And the Spirit says, no, not there. So they say, well, let's try another place. Well, look at verse 7. They came to Mycenae, and they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. He says, no, not there either. 
And it's almost you can picture in the apostolic team's mind, you know, Lord, we're trying to be faithful. We're trying to take the gospel to the Gentiles. We're knocking on all these doors, and it's not as though it's simply they're not open to us. It's that you and your sovereignty are saying, no, don't go there. No, I don't want you there either. Where do you want us? Well, we're told in verse 8, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared, verse 9, to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging Paul, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Uh, You have to think, don't you, that, that Paul, perhaps in particular, might have been going to bed each night with anxiety and angst. Paul's desperate to be faithful to his apostolic commission, and he can't get anywhere to do what God has called him to do. And then suddenly, this man from Macedonia, we have no idea who he is, mysteriously appears in a vision and says, why don't you come to us? Come, help us, Paul. Uh, You might have experienced frustration in, in recent days. Frustration, perhaps, in your desire to be fruitful and faithful. Lord, I want to do this because I think it will glorify you. Lord, I want to go there because I think it will honor Jesus Christ. And you keep closing that door. Ever felt that way? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It seems like it would be good for the kingdom and I can't go. Well, maybe it's because in his providence, he's frustrating where you want to go because he's about ready to open a door from where he wants you to go. A Macedonian man says, come, Paul, help us. If you've been at Redeemer uh, long enough, you know that I very much appreciate the ministry of a 20th century Welsh preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones. We have many recordings of him uh, preaching, audio recordings, but very few video recordings of him. And and one of the few surviving videos of the doctor, it belongs to this interview that he had with this Welsh poet and and literary critic who became a broadcaster. And somewhere uh, along the way in that interview, uh, this man asked Lloyd-Jones, what do you think the church needs above all else? Lloyd-Jones was reaching the twilight years of his ministry. He was soon going to retire and actually quite quickly then die and pass on to glory. And there at the end, as he's thinking about the future, reflecting back on his own ministry there in London, he's answering the question, what do you think the church needs today above all else? And it's a perennial question, isn't it? I wonder how you would answer that question perhaps over lunch, asking your children or asking a family member, asking a friend, What do you think the church needs above all else? And Lloyd-Jones responded as he typically would. He says, quote, She needs to be absolutely certain about her message. We need to get back to the position of Paul. When he went to Corinth, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We mustn't be trying to preach anything else. And I tell you that because you'll see what we're told in verse 10. And Paul has seen the vision. Immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Paul, we're in Macedonia, and we need help. But the Macedonian man didn't say what kind of help they needed, did he? Uh, He could have said many different things, Paul in his mind, concluded. They need help in Macedonia, so let's go do this. But in Paul's mind, what, what, what the people of Macedonia needed, above all else, was nothing more than the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I trust that you would agree that the same thing is true no matter the soul, no matter the city today. That what the soul of the city needs most above all else is the preaching of Jesus Christ. 
So God sends his missionaries for the work of conversion. And now we'll see in verse 11 through the end how God saves. Verse 11 tells us that they eventually come to the city of Philippi in Macedonia. Students, if you know your geography well, this means that the gospel in Acts is breaking out into Europe for the first time. As they're coming into this northern region of Greece, there's the city of Philippi. You'll see at the end of verse 12, it's the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, and they stayed there many days. Paul's ordinary pattern, we know by this point in Acts, he would go into a city, and where would he go first? He'd go to a synagogue. But what we're getting ready to see is there's no synagogue, evidently, in Philippi. Now, to establish a synagogue, all you needed uh, was 10 God-fearing men who would kind of be a quorum for the synagogue. Evidently, in Philippi, this leading district and colony in the Roman Empire, you can't even find ten God-fearing men in the land. That's how dark it surely was at that moment. And so what Paul does is stumble upon a woman's prayer group. Look at what we're told in verse 13. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. The text, you'll notice, goes on to highlight this woman from Thyatira. She's a purple goods seller. Her name is Lydia. That she's a purple goods seller, well, it means she's probably quite wealthy. She's there in Philippi at the time. She's said also to be a God-fearing woman. So you need to think about her as as an earnest Jew. She's no doubt well instructed in Old Testament truths. It doesn't tell us what, what Paul told her. But in some sort of conversation there, outside of the city at this prayer gathering, it's likely, isn't it, that Paul would have spoken to her uh, the truth that Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Messiah, that he's the long-expected king, the holy one of Israel. And she is quite quickly converted, the text tells us, and, and you'll see her response further upon belief in Jesus Christ. Verse 15, she was baptized, her household as well. She urged us, saying, if you have judged me faithful to the Lord Come to my house and stay. So you see, ordinary responses to the gospel from someone who has truly believed in Jesus Christ is baptism, and we might say enthusiasm for God's people. Uh, There's baptism, no doubt. She's converted. She must be baptized, significantly as we talked about even earlier in the service. Her household is baptized along with her, as God still relates to households in the new covenant age, not merely individuals. But she expresses her faith in this hospitality, doesn't she? She says, you got to come. you got to come to my house. you got to come be with us for these days. And she prevailed upon us. And it's a response of the gospel that's, that's one of obedience that's without delay. Baptism and enthusiasm. So the missionary team, they're there staying with Lydia. It's as though... A celebration in heaven breaks out. Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't he tell us that anytime one soul repents and comes to the Savior, that this a party erupts in heaven. There's this redemption of Lydia, and it's almost as though you can picture the Father smiling at the angel's joy, saying, we've got more work to do in Philippi. Uh, we just redeemed Lydia, and now it's time to rescue a slave girl. Because that's what comes. Look at verse 16. A Paul and Silas and Timothy, surely they're, they're going... Back to the place of prayer. Sometimes spectacular things happen as you go on the ordinary steps of devotion to spirituality and worship. Just going about the ordinary path of of loving the Lord, praying to Him, depending upon Him, coming to Him with faith. And amazing things happen for, look at whom they meet, were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. 
and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Kids, you could translate that phrase, spirit of divination, actually quite literally as spirit of a python. Now, python to our ears communicates what? As very large snake. And that's right, because pythons are very large and scary snakes. Now, if you had lived in this time in Philippi, python wouldn't have communicated that immediately in the same way it does to us. Uh, a python uh, was quite significant in Greek mythology for the Greek god Apollo. In Greek mythology, it was said sometime long ago that Apollo defeated this giant serpent named Python. And now what Apollo gave his female devotees was the spirit of the Python, which was an ability to see into the future. And of course, if you understand how snakes work themselves out in Scripture, that someone is filled with a snake, well, it's never a good thing. But she seems to hit on some truth, doesn't she? Verse 17, she's crying out, following Paul and this missionary team for a number of days, saying, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Verse 18 says, she kept doing this for many days, and Paul became greatly annoyed. Now you might wonder, oh, why is Paul greatly annoyed? I mean, he, it's almost as though he could look at her and say, see, citizens of Philippi, you heard the truth from her mouth. We're servants of the Most High God proclaiming to you the way of salvation. But why would Paul then be righteously angry and annoyed if that's what she was actually saying? Because she speaks the truth as Christians today would hear it, as Philippian citizens would hear it though. It's nothing more than this slave girl filled with a demon, used and abused by masters, declaring they're just like all the other religious quacks out there, servants of some god that belongs in the pantheon of deities. And Paul would be right after many days of this shouting slave girl uttering this in their trail. Paul knows there's, there's but one true God. There's but one way of salvation. I'd like to know how many days it took for Paul to be so grieved in his spirit, disturbed in his soul that he took action, but he eventually did. You see in verse 18, he's greatly annoyed. He turned to her, said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. The text doesn't tell us, does it, that she was converted? Seems likely, though, that she was, that you would find her in the Philippian house church of the time as her story is sandwiched between these clear accounts of redemption and salvation with Lydia and the Philippian jailer. And, and maybe you notice how, how different are the stories of God's saving grace with these different women. You have Lydia, who's named in wealthy, seemingly independent. You have the slave girl, not named, quite poor, and in possession of others. And yet, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it belongs to both. To the rich and the poor alike, the known and the unknown alike. Those that belong to the kingdom of darkness. God loves to bring all types into the kingdom of his beloved son. But just as the spirit goes out from her, the text actually says quite Literally, in its original language, verse 19, prophet goes out from her masters. They've lost the ability to be wealthy based upon her fortune-telling. And you can presume then, students, they're not terribly happy about this. So you look at what they whip up the crowd into a frenzy with the magistrates, verse 20 and 21. These men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city, and they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. So the crowd joins in the attack and 
That time has come for almost the predictable opposition there in Philippi. The most famous council after the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. It happened, you know, some 275 years or so into the future in the city of Nicaea, as the Emperor Constantine called the Council of Nicaea in AD 325 to to settle these major theological issues at the time. Uh, History would tell us that there were 318 delegates to the Council of Nicaea. History would also tell us that over 300 of those delegates, if I recall correctly, something like 306 of the 318, uh, they showed up into that council room either having lost an eye, having lost a limb, or walking with a pronounced limp because of the torture they had experienced for their service for Jesus Christ. It was this council, it was this assembly that portrayed in their very body the words of Jesus Christ who said, you will experience trouble in this world. You will be persecuted. The world will want to hurt you. Uh, Paul knows that in his own body as well, doesn't he? Because you'll see the, the crowd is whipped up into a frenzy, Jew and Gentile alike, civilian and magistrate alike. The end of verse 22 tells us they gave orders to beat Paul and Silas with rods and they inflicted many blows upon them. They threw them into prison. And another conversion is on the way. The saints are perhaps rejoicing in heaven. We've rescued the slave girl. The angels are singing about the redemption of Lydia. And and the Lord says, we're not done in Philippi yet. We've got to release this prison jailer from the prison of his own sin. And you'll see how it begins in verse 25. Uh, I grew up in a household when I was younger that my parents occasionally would turn on PBS. And... It seems like more often than not when PBS would be turned on in our house, there was some sort of concert that was happening. I have these vivid memories of, from my earliest age, PBS being on, and there were these concerts of the three tenors that were erupting, as some of you perhaps can recall. And in certainly a striking way, what you get in verse 25 is the prison broadcast system singing forth a concert, and I mean this reverently, of two apostolic tenors. They are beaten, perhaps, near the point of death. They are thrown into a prison cell. They are in chains in bonds, having no idea if they're going to get out. And look what they're doing, verse 25. Praying and singing hymns to God. Those who love the Lord know how to find Him in the dark. When darkness surrounds God's beloved people, they know how to even find light in the darkness. That's why even children, you should be thankful that you are in a church and God's kindness and wisdom are trying to teach you good hymns. We're trying to teach you good psalms. So that like Paul and Silas, when suffering comes, uh, the first impulse isn't frustration, anxiety, and despair and bitterness. But perhaps it's a psalm. Perhaps it's a hymn. The sanctified tenor-like voice arising up as an anthem to those who are listening The Lord decides to accompany their concert, you'll notice in verse 26, with an earthquake. An earthquake that breaks forward every prison door, it breaks forward every prison chain, and the jailer knows that to let people out of jail, to to lose the prisoners, to experience a jailbreak, well, it's a capital offense and he would have to be executed. So look at what was going on in the end of verse 27. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, 
for we are all here. Verse 29, he verifies that it's quite true. And what does he do? In verse 30, he falls down before Paul and Silas. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I spoke recently with a grandmother in our church who had had a grandchild over to her house for an extended period of time. And the grandmother remarked to me something like, you know, we don't really have to do that much when the grandchild comes over because the grandchild just asks questions, you know, all day long. You know, Grandma, what about this? Grandpa, what about that? And then hours and hours pass by as we're just talking back and forth. And, and students, I hope you have gotten to a point where in all your questions that you ask, uh, that you ask this question, which is the most eternally significant question that you could ever ask. It's simple yet altogether significant, isn't it? What must I do to be saved? And what does Paul say? He cuts right to the chase, doesn't he? Paul at this point in Acts has already delivered long, eloquent, and powerful, spirit-inspired sermons. He doesn't feel like that's necessary here, does he? He says, my jailer friend, notice what the text tells us. Verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. He believes. He's baptized. The text goes on to tell us as well, his family is baptized. And then verse 34, he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Celebrations over conversion that abound. A rich, wealthy woman named Lydia. It seems like, quite likely, this slave girl, imprisoned and possessed by a demon, set free. This jailer. Likewise, in charge of chaining people in a prison, now in the prison of his own sin, he's released, and everyone's rejoicing in heaven over the conversion of these souls. I think I was 14 years old when one afternoon, neighbors on one side of the house shouted up to the roof at me and said, Jordan, what are you doing up there? It was something like four o'clock in the afternoon and I had come home from school that day. And uh, kids or students, you may have had this happen before. You, you came home from school, you know, the bus dropped me off and, and then I got to the house and the front door was locked. That's so why I walked around to the back door and well, the back door was locked too. And, you know, I started kind of going toward the garage and then I realized, well, we don't have this keypad on the garage. It's locked too. I don't have a garage door opener in my backpack. I can't get in there. So I started circling the first floor to see if any windows were left open. And no windows were left open. This is the day before anyone had a, a cell phone. And so I started to climb up to the roof because who knew? Maybe a window would be open up there on the roof. Jordan, what are you doing up there? Uh, uh, I'm trying to get inside the house. And the neighbor looked uh, quite excited by this rather comedic scene in, in front of him and said, so do you need a key? I needed a key because without the key, you couldn't get inside. And what you have before you depicted in a, in a striking way is God's key to salvation and conversion in Jesus Christ. That he holds it and I want you to see what happens when he turns it. In three final ways as we come to a close, as we think yet again about conversion in the work of God's grace in this passage. Number one, conversion is a sovereign work of God. Go back to verse 14. You see, we're told at the very end, the Lord opened her heart, that being Lydia's, to pay attention to what was said by Paul. It doesn't say, does it, that Lydia 
opened her heart to what was said by Paul. It doesn't say even in a way it could have. The Lord came knocking on her heart. The Lord took the key of the gospel in Jesus Christ, inserted it into her heart, turned it and opened it, and in rushed salvation and conversion because the Spirit called her at that precise moment. And I trust you know that God is always sovereign in the work of conversion. And what an encouragement that should be is to some of you in here today that for years and years, you have scratched up your knees in your prayer closet, praying that God would save a close family member or friend that is on the road to judgment and that you desperately long for them to be saved. Oh, what hope do you have? You have the hope that God holds this key in his hand and he can open hearts. Not only can open hearts, he loves to open hearts. Even of those that are far gone in the midst of their iniquity and sin. He's, he's sovereign in the work of conversion. I want you to see, secondly, that conversion often comes through the ministry of suffering servants. Conversion often comes through the ministry of suffering servants. It's the suffering of separation from Silas that, that got Paul really on the road to Philippi. As there he met Lydia and she was converted. It was again being beaten with rods, thrown into the suffering cell of, of a prison that there God intended to save a jailer. Some of you in here today, I know, are suffering going through an affliction that other people know about, going through a, a hardship that nobody knows about. Uh, and maybe God means for that suffering to come into your life so that his converting work would come into another's life through your ministry of faithfulness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So conversion is a sovereign work of God. Conversion often comes through the ministry of, of suffering saints. Finally, conversion happens when you believe in Jesus Christ. You have to end with that kind of a sweet yet significant gospel note. Because look again what the jailer asked in verse 30. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And what does Paul say? Well, brother, you don't have to do anything. The gospel isn't about doing something. The gospel is about believing in someone. You don't have to lift an arm to do anything. You don't have to walk so many steps to do something. You don't have to do this. You have to believe. On the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. And that dear friends is the sweetest news. That you could ever hear this day. Because I promise you. There is nothing you could ever do. That would earn God's grace in salvation. Only thing you've ever done. The only thing you are doing. The only thing you will ever do. Is, is earn God's justice. For you have fallen short. So the sweetness is. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. This is that glorious work. Of conversion. Let's pray together. Now, Father, we ask that you would, by your grace and mercy, open hearts today to Jesus Christ. Hearts that are closed to his work and have never been opened. Hearts that have been closed for a while after having been opened. And that your key of sovereign grace would open us all to the life that's found in him. Knowing that you delight to save sinful people like us. And we pray it all in the name that is powerful and precious. The name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well,